Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 364 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff. And I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Today's episode is brought to you by Remodel Health. Visit remodelhealth.com forward slash carry today to learn how your organization can actually save money in healthcare. You get a bunch of stuff there. And uh, by ProMedia Fire, book your free digital strategy session today at promediafire.com forward slash church growth. Well, really excited to have Nick Walenda on the show today. And it's so funny because, you know, I remember hearing about his family and he'll he'll describe it even when I was a kid. And so uh, they are tightrope walkers, uh, daredevils, athletes. Uh, and we talk about so much, including how you prepare and train to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope, like wire walking, how to do that across Times Square, the Grand Canyon, all of which he's done. He holds multiple world records. And um, we also talk about how to pivot on a business model because the Walenda family, who has been at this for generations, used to do this at the circus and the circus doesn't really exist like it used to. And so he is a seventh generation member of the legendary Walenda family. He's known worldwide, holds seven Guinness World Records and uh, started all this at the age of two. So one of the things I love doing, as you may know, if you're a longtime listener of the show, is I love what I call cross-disciplinary learning. So rather than just reading in your field, it's like I'll read a lot of ministry books or leadership books. Uh, I love to have conversations and read books from people who don't do what I do. And I think you learn a lot. So I think you're really going to love this, particularly how do you train to walk across Niagara Falls and then the adverse conditions, crazy stuff. So really excited to have Nick on the podcast. Hope you guys are doing well, man. Summer's coming to an end. It's September. How did that happen? But uh, that probably means you're getting ready to work on the budget for 2021. And if you're tired of your expensive, outdated group health plan, health insurance is hard enough to navigate as a leader, but annual rate increases can make it feel really painful. So Remodel Health is the health benefits software and consulting service that helps employers save money and care better for their teams. By switching organizations from traditional group insurance to individual plans, you can actually get significant savings and sometimes even improve the health benefits your employees have. So listeners of this show alone have saved $1.5 million in the last year and a half on healthcare premiums. So if you're interested in joining the savings, go check out remodelhealth.com forward slash carry. And there you can get access to their free savings calculator, the church buyer's guide, and a brand new ebook. They also help not-for-profits and businesses too. So if you're interested, head on over to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry. And then Promedia Fire is helping so many churches increase engagement right now. And in the old days, when everything was based on physical attendance, you kind of knew how to do that. But how do you do it online? A study in 2018 found that 72% of people buy a product because of design. So good design is really going to matter online for your church. If you want some help doing that, you can get an entire team of creative professionals providing digital strategy and a creative framework to help your church grow online for less than the cost of a staff hire. Book your free strategy session today at promediafire.com forward slash church growth. 
Well, super excited to bring you Nick Walenda. I've got at the very end a uh, what I'm thinking about segment. And I'm going to talk, particularly as we head into the fall, about how to lead your church when people just can't agree on anything right now. So that's coming up at the end of the show. In the meantime, my conversation with Nick Walenda. Nick, welcome to the podcast. It's a joy to meet you. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up watching uh, your family on TV. You're a seventh generation daredevil, tightrope walker, yeah, uh, that been, kind of thing. We've been at it for quite some time. Uh, actually, my family started performing back in the 1780s. So a long time. 1780s? Yeah, You're so kidding. 1780s over in Bohemia, eventually making our way to Germany, and then over to the United States in 1928 which was for John Ringling and Ringling Brothers Barnum Bailey Circus. Uh, but but yeah, toured all over the world before that, of course, for a couple hundred years. Yeah, and was there something like, I'm a child of the 70s, I was born in the 60s, but you sort of remember as a kid the 70s and it was like your family and Evil Knievel and like there was something about, I don't know what it was, Adventure or Daredevils yeah, in the look, 70s, I, wasn't I mean, there? Ironically, we all know each other even today. Uh, Evil Knievel was my great-grandfather's best friend. My dad had so many stories of, of my great-grandfather's deep German accent saying, evil's coming over, and the kids would all get scared. Like, what do you mean evil's coming over? But uh, yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, it, it was a time where daredevils were were sort of a huge thing. And, and, and since then, it's sort of evolved and changed, of course. Uh, but, but we're still going on, again, seven generations, as you mentioned. Oh, that's uh, that's neat. So from somebody who only has experience watching this stuff on TV or occasionally live, how do you even go about trying to figure out how to walk a tightrope? Literally, well, like well, across yeah. Niagara Falls or Times Square or whatever. Like, how do you, where, where do you, where do you, like, where do you even begin? Well, you have your family start a couple hundred years before you and then it's just in your <laughs> DNA. No, you know, it, it's funny. I actually, my mom was six months pregnant with me and still walking the wire. Uh, so I've walked, I've been on a wire Whoa, longer than my seriously? Been on terra firma. Yeah. So it's, it's been a long, uh, long history in my own life. I'm 41 now. So I've been walking a wire forever, but I, I started about 18 months old and started walking a wire about two feet off the ground. But just like anything, you start down low and it's trial and error. You know, we try to do everything we do, whether it be, you know, I have 11 Guinness world records now, everything from riding a bike to to you know, walking across Niagara Falls, et cetera. But we do everything in a safe setting, learn it well right. and safe, and then we go up high, and then we'll take those risks. You know, For Niagara Falls, I trained with wind machines that created wind gusts of 90 miles per hour, knowing they wouldn't exceed from the studies that we'd done 65 miles per hour. Uh, I trained with firemen up in their, on the top of their ladders, just hosing me down as I was on the wire. Again, trying to prepare for the worst case, which is a great analogy in life, right? Uh, but try to prepare for the worst case before I got in the condition where it, it could take my life potentially if I were to fall. No, it's a, you know you don't you don't think about those things, right? Like when you're just like, whoa, getting up on a wire, I could never do that. And so, literally, I want I want to just walk through some of the events. In 2012, uh, you fulfilled a lifelong dream to become the only person to walk directly over the precipice of Niagara Falls. I live two hours from Niagara Falls. I know what that is like. Uh, so for those who know the falls well, where, because I remember that event live, was that from the American side of the falls, like the American falls to the Horseshoe, the Horseshoe. Falls, or where yeah, was so that? It was, it was from, from Terrapin Point, actually, okay. which is where the falls wrap around on the U.S. side. 
directly over the precipice. And then over the Canadian, there's a, a national park on the Canadian side. Oh, it's beautiful. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it is absolutely gorgeous. So walk directly over that horseshoe falls from one side to the other. I would That's tell a big you the gap. Most, the most intim- it is a, a very big gap. The most intimidating part of it was was probably the sound, believe it or not, as crazy as that is. But that alone is so intimidating. I remember being out there the day before I did that walk live on ABC. And as I was sitting on the edge and, and trying to figure out, you know, there's really no way to tell. We flew drones out there, et cetera. But what are the winds like? And, and everybody said right. they weren't predictable. There were other wire walkers who said it was impossible to walk where I was going to walk because of the winds, because of the, the conditions there. Um, and I remember sitting there sort of freaked out a bit and, and, and sitting there with my dad and saying, Dad, I just I don't know about these winds. You know, people are telling me the up, updrafts can be so strong, they'll lift me off the wire. And as, as I was saying that, there were a bunch of seagulls flying around in the air, which are everywhere near water, of course. Yeah, and they are. <laughs> just kind of dove, nosedived right down through the, the big um, plume of, of water that was coming up. And as he nosedived through that, he sort of just cruised right through. And my dad said, did you see that bird? I said, yeah. He goes, well, they're designed to be lightweight and to fly with wind. And he said he didn't all of a sudden shoot 200 feet straight in the air when he hit that updraft. He actually flew right through it. And that was what actually kept me calm enough to sleep till about 9 a.m. the next morning when I was going to take that walk over over the falls. <laughs> so for anybody, I know all, every time somebody comes here to visit me, they're like, we got to go see Niagara Falls. So, you know, usually they go before they get to my place, which is a bit north, but. Um, it's a pretty intimidating thing. How big is the drop to Niagara Falls? So the Falls? drop is about two, uh, about 200 feet is the actual drop uh, from where I walk down to the, the, the lower water's edge. Uh, of course, it's not much water. It's mostly rocks for anybody that's been there. You know, a lot of yes, said, and a 200-foot oh, well, drop, you're probably you're, not going to make he's it. safe. It's water. Well, the reality is, no, it's, it's mostly rocks. And, and as we know from a lot of loss of life in that area of daredevils back in the day, uh, that, that, that undertow in the water, there's just no way to, very little way to recover from that. You know, in fact, people don't realize, but it took changing two laws, one in the U.S. and one in Canada, over 100 years old, just for me to get permission to do that walk. Because so many people back in the day lost their lives because of the risks they were taking, uh, there was laws put in effect that said no stunting, no stunts allowed. So that was probably more of a monumental task than actually making the trek across was, just changing those laws and getting permission to do that walk. Did you study past artists or daredevils who had attempted to do what you were going to yeah, do or variations of it? You know, what I learned was we all have heard a story, or most of us, of Charles Blondin, who was, was uh, always known as the first person to walk across Niagara Falls. Well, the reality is Charles Blondin didn't walk across the falls. He walked about a kilometer downstream of the falls. Uh, and oh. I think the reason why was the rigging aspect of that in order to rig that wire uh, back in that time when he was walking was nearly impossible over those falls because of the treacherous weather conditions. It, it has its own weather environment, actually. Uh, it has its own atmosphere, Niagara Falls. So it was um, I believe that's why. So I did a little bit of studying, of course, of Charles Vaughn and what he did. There were many other wire walkers that had had walked. But again, all of them downstream. No one ever walked. Well, and if you know Niagara Falls at that point, it's a river. It's not a right. it's not a stream, and I would imagine that the winds aren't anywhere near as fierce as certainly. they would be where you walk. Yeah, certainly a different environment altogether. You know, where I walked directly over the precipice, we had updrafts, and then we had drafts coming down in each side. I mean, again, it is its own weather environment and uh, in its own atmosphere. It was very um, 
Uh, it was very strange being out in the middle there, uh, sort of eerie at times because it was so unpredictable. A lot of the walks that I do, you can predict where the wind's coming from and you can prepare for it as best you can and lean into it if it's coming from one direction. When I walked over Niagara, it was sort of swirling around like a hurricane. Yeah, and if you know, I mean, you can you can Google this yourself, but if you haven't been to Niagara Falls, it's a massive body of water and there's multiple falls. And the big one, the one that gets in all the shots is the Horseshoe Falls, which you can see best from the Canadian side, hence everybody comes to Canada to see it. Um, but it really is turbulent. And there's a ship there called the Maid of the Mist and they do tours. And I mean, you're in a raincoat and it's not raining, it's a beautiful sunny day, but you're in your own ecosystem. And if you fly over it, which I've done hundreds of times, uh, the mist goes in like hundreds of feet into the air. You can see it from miles away. So yes. what was it like on the day that you crossed? You know, it was a typical day, but as you just mentioned, a typical day over Niagara Falls is, is uh, basically a torrential downpour the entire time if you're actually in the plume. Uh, you know, helicopters very rarely can go directly in that area because of those, the winds are so unpredictable. The only time that they'll ever go is for a rescue mission. Uh, and then it's very unique that they'll be cleared to go. So it is, uh, again, it is as unpredictable as, as anything that I've ever done. Um, and, and hard to describe. I mean, the day itself, again, was an average day. It was a summer day. I think it was June 15th, 2012. And, and uh, everything seemed, seemed fairly normal. But again, so it's 75, 80 degrees, sunny, few clouds. Yeah, yeah, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary, just a, just a normal day. However, I will tell you that when I started that walk on the U.S. side, there were about 120,000 people waiting for me on the Canadian side, and they were not able to see me because that, the, the, uh, the plume of mist was so thick. Yes. It was, it was almost like that backdraft, you know, in the movie where you see the guys walking out of the smoke from the house and the fire. I literally walked through this plume of mist that was so thick that it was hard to see at times. Uh, you know, people think, oh, the winds. But what about the fact that I, I, I like to be able to see what I'm doing when I'm walking the wire? Uh, and the wire was definitely rigged very uniquely. In fact, no one in the history of funambulism, which is a fancy word for wire walking, had ever walked on a cable that was unstabilized that length. Uh, Sorry, which, unstabilized? Which, correct. So what is, there, what generally does that mean? speaking, I try to put a stabilizer cable every 30 to 50 feet going down to kind of stabilize that wire from swaying. Well, we weren't able to because of the terrain there. So that cable was actually moving 12 to 18 inches each direction as I was walking on it. Not oh my gosh. So this is like, you're and, thinking, like I think two by four, almost, yeah. it's not a two by four, but you know, it's static, but it's not, it's moving. Correct, that is correct. It was moving the entire time. So um, it was certainly uneasy, a lot of nerves. You know, people say, well, what about it was your first national TV special? And that didn't even cross my mind once. You know, once I get on that wire, I get in a <laughs> it's sort like, of a zone. I could die. This yeah, could be it. It doesn't right? matter who's watching, you know. Um, yeah. it, it is all about me making it cross safely. And, and that's that's about all that's on my mind. Of course, my faith plays a key role in, in who I am uh, in any yeah. stressful situation. And, and, you know, during that special, I was uh, I was just talking to God, talking to Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, the entire time. And um, that made it on national TV and became... Uh, became sort of a thing. I, I, I got a lot of uh, testimonies of people whose lives were inspired and, and were changed through uh, just watching me walk across Niagara Falls, which proves that God can use any of us. <laughs> I love that, Nick. 
Um, can we can we deconstruct the training a little bit? So obviously you start when you're 18 months. That was eight years ago. So you would have been about 33, young 30s. And nobody had done that. No human has done it before or since. What So t- like that whole thing about, okay, I'm practicing in a wind tunnel. I'm, I'm getting firefighters to hose me down. Can you just walk through your training regimen? Yeah, it was it was very much. I would tell you that very much my training is is as much physical as it is mental. Yes, uh, you know I can I can easily talk myself out of doing every one of these events if if I allow myself to. Uh, so a part part of my physical training helps me mentally as well. Knowing that I can withstand winds at ninety plus miles per hour. We brought in what we did is we brought in airboats. We uh, strapped them down to the ground, fired them up. We had anemometers in place. And so an airboat's one of those things with the big fan at the back, like correct. you see them in the Everglades, yep. that kind of thing. Okay, that's right. Yeah, so we uh, we used this massive fan. It created winds gusts of up to ninety miles per hour, and I was wa- I just walked through it. And again, it was just um, knowing that I could walk in ninety mile an hour alone helped me go. Okay, if I can walk in ninety mile an hour winds, I can deal with a duck draft. I can deal with some side drafts, etc. And then adding to that mix, eventually after training for about a month on this unstabilized cable, and I can I can back up in a second and go to the first day of training, which is extremely stressful. But then adding in other elements, adding in heavy mist from firefighters, and and training in torrential uh, torrential downpours. And you know w- when there's a storm in Florida, if there's no lightning, if it's not electrical storm, I get out on the wire because it's the perfect <laughs> environment. We got crazy wind gusts and wind speeds, as well as torrential downpours. Uh, sometimes where they're so so thick that you can't see. Well, that's perfect for me training. I remember the first day we set that wire up. As I mentioned to you, it was an unstabilized cable. No one had ever walked on an unstabilized cable like that up until that point. And uh, we rigged the cable one day. I had a crew of guys, including my father and my uncle, who are my, my lead riggers and engineers. And um, that evening, I remember getting back from doing a bunch of media and it was dinner time. We had dinner and they said, okay, tomorrow we'll go out there. You can get on. I'm like, I won't sleep if I don't get on it now. Mm. So we headed out uh, to the parking lot where it was set up. It was a public training area, but I was like, I just want to get on it in private at night. So it was around 11 o'clock at night. I remember standing on the roof of a friend's pickup truck because that's about how high the wire was rigged. Uh, when, when we rig these cables, one thing that people don't realize is there's a large catenary. And what that means is a big smiley face. So the wire will start at one point, it'll drop down 30, 40, 50 feet, and then be, again, another solid point on the other side. Because, again, you think tight, but no, there's slack in it. So I have to be able to walk down and up. So uh, the center of that was about probably eight feet off the ground. So I got on the roof of his truck, stepped on the wire, and that wire rolled and knocked me right off, fell right off. And I was like, what am I going to do? Here we are. A month out, I thought that this wire was going to be stable. I wasn't going to have any issues. I was going to be walking, but absolutely contrary to, the, to, to what it was. Uh, so immediately <laughs> got with my, my dad, my engineers and said, hey, we got to figure this out. This ain't going to work. Uh, and we put our heads together. And then if you watch that walk, which you can see on YouTube, uh, we actually ended up putting some brackets that were basically a bar that hung down at the bottom of that bar. There was a weight and it grabbed the wire. And what it did is it kept the wire from twisting. 180 degrees or 360 degrees. Oh, oh yeah, because that'll happen, it. right? Uh, it did cause the wire to move a bit, but the fact that it wasn't rolling me off was enough peace of mind to go, okay. But I, I had a lot going against me at that point. I had to go to a place where no man had ever gone before, which is the center of Niagara Falls at that height. Uh, I had to go on a wire that was unstabilized, never done before. 
Uh, and again, that environment was just so unpredictable. So there was so much weighing against me on my mind uh, that the biggest challenge of that walk was, look, okay, I can physically do it. And I trained on that cable uh, that I was just mentioning, and I would walk that six times. So meaning I could walk over Niagara Falls six times without stopping, and I'd be okay with wind, with water, over-training, over-preparing, over-exhilarating myself, because when adrenaline kicks in, uh, if it dies down too soon, it can be very, very dangerous. Because once you have adrenaline crash, then all of a sudden you get weak, you lose all that strength. Uh, Every preacher knows what you're talking about in a much more muted form. But yeah, keep going. Yeah. So, uh, so a lot of, a lot of training, uh, but again, it all kind of fed into the psyche of it, of going, okay, if I can do this six times, I can do it safely. If I can do this in 90 mile an hour winds, I can do it safely. If I can do this with these heavy, heavy mist of the fire trucks spraying on me, I can walk across safely. So a lot of it is the power of the mind, which is really what my, my book that I'm sure we're going to talk about shortly yeah, yeah. is about is just where we allow our minds to go and, and controlling that and, and also being prepared for worst cases uh, physically so that you're ready mentally. Well, and I, that was one of my questions for you, Nick, is how much of this is mental and how much of this is physical? Like, obviously, if you're just average athletics, you're not going to be able to walk a tightrope. Yeah. Now, look, I'm a strong believer that in that anything you can do anything you set your mind to, you know, with limitations and realistic limitations. I believe I could train you to walk the wire. It would take a while, maybe maybe a month, but I could have you walking on a wire, maybe not up high. But I could have mm-hmm. you walking on a wire 30 feet long, five feet up high, back and forth. Um, so I think that anybody can do anything. However, you know, the training that I have put in is a lifelong of training, yeah, uh, yeah. which helps a lot in these in these conditions that I put myself in often. Hmm. Um Okay. Anything else about the physical training? Because we are going to spend a lot of time sort of in the mental space, which is what your book is about. But anything else on physical training? I'm just really... As far as physical training goes, it really is something that for me, because I've done it so long, it is very much second nature. In fact, one of the dangerous aspects of what I do is that it becomes so much second nature that complacency can can set in. Uh, And and what I mean by that is, you know, I've I've raised three children now. I have a 17-year-old. The other two are adults. And I remember times performing, for instance, I walked over the Allegheny River in Pittsburgh, about 280 feet up, probably one of the hardest walks I ever completed. People aren't even aware of it, but because the conditions I faced at that point, uh, there was a bunch stacked against me right before showtime. Um, And I remember looking down. What happened there? And uh, so so we were, I was on a tour called uh, Nick Valenda Walks Across America. Uh, I was contracted to perform at the, in the Allegheny, over the Allegheny River. Um, and we ordered the cable to be delivered directly to the spot, uh, because I was touring, it had to be delivered there. Uh, it came greased. So normally we order our cables where they don't have grease on them for obvious reasons. Oh man. Uh, so it was a greased cable. So we are a day and a half out. I've got uh, a huge, uh, amount of press into this. Uh, a lot of people were scheduled to come. In fact, about 280,000 people showed up. I think it was the largest live audience in person that I'd ever performed. I still have ever performed to. Uh, but, uh, so the cable was greased. So I've trained and walked on greasy cables before. In fact, most recent special, when I walked over a volcano, we can talk about that if we want in a minute, but uh, I had to train on a greasy cable because of a last minute curveball that was thrown at me after the rigging was set up. Uh, but, but I've trained a lot on a cable that's greasy um, in case something like this were to happen. Again, always preparing for worst case. Um, so, so I knew I could walk on a greasy cable uh, but my wire shoes, which are actually made by my mom, it's almost like an Indian moccasin. They're molded to my feet. 
uh, thin suede leather. It's actually an elk skin leather on the bottom uh, so that I can feel the wire through them. Well, as I was getting ready to perform, I went out and I spoke to the, to the crowd from a microphone through a radio station. And then I got on a four-wheeler to drive 1,500 feet to the other side of that, that uh, Fort Duquesne Bridge and got off and got ready to ride on a headache ball of a crane, which I sit on. It lifts me up to the top of that tower and I get off and I get on this cable and walk. Well, there was a, a rule uh, that OSHA oversaw what I was doing until I got on the wire because they can't oversee entertainment, but they can oversee cranes. So they said, in order for me to ride up on that headache ball, I have to wear a safety. It's called a fall arrest. And it's basically a retractable line that comes all the way down. I hook into it. If the crane were to fail, it would just stop and I would hang there and yeah. safety could get to me. Uh, so I get to the other side. I looked to my best friend who had my wire shoes at the time. I handed him before I said that, you know, before I talked to the crowd and he said, I said, I need my wire shoes. He goes, he turned white. I'm like, what's wrong? He said, I forgot him on the other side. So I've got, you know, 200 plus thousand people waiting to see me perform live TV coverage. When it's time to go on live TV, you have to go, et cetera. And I was like, okay, I've trained to walk in socks. It's part of my training. I'll walk in sock, my socks. Fine. So I take my shoes off. Headache falls coming down and the retractable uh, safety snaps and flies straight up and smacks the top of the crane. So here I don't have my wire shoes. So I'm already a little bit shook up. Then that happens, which I wasn't worried about wearing a safety, but it, it all of a sudden stuff like this starts happening. It starts making your mind go crazy. So another thing was up until that point, no one had ever walked on a wire that was stabilized only to one side. So generally every 30 to 50 feet, we have a stabilizer cable coming down to the ground on both sides that keeps that wire stable. Well, because I was walking over a river, they could only come off one side. So what that did was it caused the wire to do some sort of a crazy movement rather than being pulled down and stable. Now it was doing this sort of stuff. Sort of a circular motion. Yeah. So I trained for that, but fine. It was just something else that I was stacked up against me. So now the safety thing happens. I get to the top. I don't have my wire shoes. I start walking. Well, the wire was much more unstable than I'd predicted and trained for. So it was moving like crazy. I get out about 250 feet and it starts pouring down rain. <laughs> so I'm at a point where I am, everything's up against me. In fact, I made it to the other side. When I got to the other side, I wasn't strong enough to lift my arms up over my head because I was, not that I wasn't strong, I was so worn out, so beat that I couldn't even lift my hands over my head. Thank God, you know, that I made it at that point. It was such a relief. But then I had to climb back down to get down onto that headache ball and climb down, which took me about 15 minutes just to let my arms recover, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what I- Oh my goodness. And that's like mental, physical, full focus exhaustion. Yeah, everything you could imagine thrown at you. Um, but well, I this is why this what, belongs on a leadership podcast, by the way. You are just metaphorically describing what in literal ways- what every leader has run into. It's like, I was ready for this problem, but then this happened and this happened and this happened and yep. this happened. Yeah, and that's generally wow. the way it is, is you try to prepare and be prepared for everything that could be thrown at you, but there's always something else. But if a walk, what I was saying is complacency can set in, which becomes very dangerous because yeah. if a walk is rigged properly and the weather conditions are right, I'm often distracted. I'll think about my kids or I'll think about what I was going to tell you, the story I was going to tell you is, my kids were down arguing, and I remember thinking like, you know what, they need to be disciplined. They can't act like that as I was walking on a wire 200 feet up. So complacency can often set in, and that's when it become very dangerous because it becomes so normal. 
you know, you just get so used to it that you're like, okay, well, this is fine. I'm, you know, this is just what I do. Now there are also times where I'm walking on a wire over a city, over Chicago, 700 feet up. And I'm like, what kind of occupation did I choose in life? This is nuts. So it goes both ways for sure. And, and there are certainly many times in my life that I have thought, what am I doing? Um, yeah. but, but it's just, uh, you know, again, it, it is so much life to us. My great grandfather said it best, Carl Willande, he said, life is on the wire and everything else is just waiting. And, uh, for our family, it's, it's true. You know, I just recently, we've, we've all been hit with this, this, uh, COVID-19 and we're all quarantined and we're all dealing. And I thought, how can I continue to do what I'm passionate about, which is inspiring people and walking wires. Uh, so I came up with a new concept, thinking outside of the box of a drive-in thrill show, uh, every all the audios pumped into your car stereo, and you're able to sit from the comfort of your car and social distance friendly and all that stuff. Um, but again, it's always about trying to stay one step ahead of the last. Hmm. Did you ever have a moment? Because this is seven. Go ahead. Yeah. The reason why staying one step ahead of the last is because I'm so passionate and love what I do. People think it's crazy. The guy's walking on a wire 200 feet up. Man, I wouldn't. I can't imagine. You know, I do a lot of motivational speaking, and I'm compensated very, very well for that often better than when I walk a wire risking my life, but I still love going to risk my life and walking these wires. Did you ever have a moment where you thought, you know what, I know I'm the seventh generation, but I'm going to go sell insurance or become a teacher or did you, know, you ever have that? Yeah. Yes. You know, in fact, the first book I wrote is called balance and it's, it's all about uh, balance in life. And it, and it tells the story of where I was going to go to school to become a pediatrician. Um, because I love medicine, love children. I did well in school and I was 17 years old and my uncle called my father and said, Hey, you've been invited. We've been invited to go to Detroit, Michigan to recreate the seven person pyramid. Uh, the, the seven person pyramid, my family was performing in Detroit at the state fair Coliseum in 1962. And as they were making their way out on the wire, that pyramid collapsed. Two of my uncles were killed and one was paralyzed. So in 98, we were invited to go back and recreate that for the first time since they fell. And I remember struggling because my parents, my mom wrote a book called The Last of the Walendas when I was a kid because she thought there was no future in the circus. Wow. So my parents pushed me to leave the industry and go to school and do something that I could support my family with. Uh, you know, we all know the story of the starving artist. My great grandfather in his book, uh, he says, you know, as a, as a circus performer or an entertainer, one day you eat the chicken and the next day you eat the feathers. And that's very, very true for our, for our industry. So uh, they pushed me away from it. So I was going to go to school to become a pediatrician. And it's when I went to, re I, I convinced my parents to allow me to go and be a part of that seven-person pyramid in Detroit. And it was sort of going to be my last hurrah, if you will, before I leave the industry. And I remember getting there and seeing at that time what seemed like satellite trucks for miles, but everybody from, at that point, it was a current affair and hard copy and, and entertainment tonight and all those TV shows Good Morning America and Today's Show and uh, Sunday Morning with Charles Kuralt, uh, they were all there. They were all there to cover this event. And I saw that and I said, you know, our industry isn't dying. This doesn't have to be the last of the Walendas. We've just got to change the way what we're doing it. And we have to mm. think outside of the box and do things in a new way. And that was when I decided that, you know what, I'm not going to go to college. I'm actually going to pursue this passion of performing because it truly is my passion. Interestingly enough, now I'm, I write this book and it's about uh, you know, encouraging people to face their fear and not give up on their dreams because of that fear. You know, there was a fear back then of, should I, should I leave my passion? Should I leave what I now know God called me to do in life to go do something for more stability? Or should I pursue those passions? You know, as believers, we often think, well, the door closes and that's the, that's the enemy. And 
uh, or that's God telling us not to do it, right? Well, it's doors closed, so we'll just leave that alone. Well, the reality is we have an enemy that seeks to devour and kill and destroy. And if we often don't open that door or knock on that door again, then we won't fulfill God's calling in our life. And that's really my life story of overcoming and living by the words that my great-grandfather and my family lived by for 200 years, which is the show must go on. Mm. I just say never give up. Same thing. It's just more applicable to others. But the reality is we need to continue to pursue these things because I believe that God places, often places these desires in our heart. And we have an enemy that doesn't want us to fulfill those desires because of what will happen. Back then I struggled with it. Okay, God, how are you going to use a wire walker to fulfill, uh, you know, to fulfill my purpose? How's that going to add to your kingdom? How's that going to bring people to know you? Well, little, little did I realize, as I talked about over Niagara Falls, when when live on TV, 13 million viewers, highest viewership rating in, in like seven or eight years on ABC for live specials, uh, I'm proclaiming the name of Jesus and people are watching and going, amen. You know what? I got testimonies of people that hadn't walked for years that said, uh, uh, one woman who was in a wheel, wheelchair bound and just didn't have the strength to muster up to get up and walk. And she got up and walked after that special by calling out to the name of Jesus. So again, uh, we don't know the beginning from the end, but God does. And he often places these desires in our hearts. But that's a long roundabout way to say, yes, I considered leaving the industry and going to become you know, a doctor or go a different direction. Uh, but I'm so happy that I continue to pursue this, even against my parents, in a sense, and not that it was you better not. And I was yeah, involved yeah. at that point. Respectfully, it was done. And of course, now at this point, they couldn't be more proud of what God, you know, the doors that God has opened in my life. Uh, but, uh, you know, I could have given up on this passion and desire that God gave me. And I'm, I'm just so happy that I didn't listen to those fears that were telling me, don't do it. Go pursue something that is, go pursue the safety net. Go pursue a job, a career that is known, that is acceptable, that is easy to, to earn an income with or easier. So one of the things you have in common with tens of thousands of leaders who are listening right now is in 1998, your mom's thinking it's over, the circus is finished, but you kind of reinvented that. And there's a lot of leaders who are like, yeah, we have to like innovate in the church. We have to innovate in my business. We have to innovate in my industry. And we're using an old model that feels like it's not kind of outdated. What did you do? Man, you want to talk about walking a tightrope in the church of how do you uh -huh. keep things up to date? That is a challenge because, of course, no matter what we do, uh, you know, in the church or as a church family, we will be, uh, you know, we will be put down and we will be, uh, uh, you know, ridiculed, etc. It seems like no matter what, you can't win. Yeah, right? and the message is eternal, but the methods have to change. Right. Correct. And it's about staying relevant. And that's really what what I I saw was here. I saw we were going to recreate the seven person pyramid. Well, the eyes of the world are on this seven person pyramid. Therefore, people are fascinated with circus. We just need to recreate it and change it and do it differently and bring it to to, you know, a whole new audience in a new light. And that's when I set out to start breaking world records. And what's interesting enough is within two years, I, I gathered my family and friends and we went to Japan and broke a world record doing the eight person pyramid. And, um, and that was great. And I thought, you know, it made headlines. It was in the Guinness Book of World Records. And I thought, great, now we're going to, we're going to go. This is, this is what we needed. And we, guess what? I didn't, I came back home to Florida and worked in a restaurant for three more years, continuing to pursue that dream. So I, I don't want people to think, well, it was easy. I pursued the dream of wire walking in this passion and it just happened. And I paid my bills and everything was great. No, there were many, many times where, and I can tell you a long story of, how I would take two steps forward and five steps backwards and two steps forward and three steps backwards. But eventually I was gaining ground the entire time. 
But, you know, being re- remaining relevant is very tough in any business uh, because society changes. Look at the circus as a whole. Uh, yeah. Back when people used to go to the circus in the beginning, well, A, it was the only form of entertainment. It came to your hometown. You couldn't go to the circus without riding on your horse to get there. Well, well, times have changed. And then for many years, it was all about the animals, elephants and horses and lions and tigers. Well, society has changed again. And now yeah. now that is not acceptable because uh, now we don't ride horses. And, and again, uh, so the industry started to tank because, again, people were going, well, we don't think that you should have animals in the circus. Well, time to redefine ourselves. But again, to me, uh, it was about taking my family legacy and then taking it to a whole new level. And uh, and that's what I had done, what I did. And God has given me just these these visions often of 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 these incredible natural wonders that he has created that I'm able to showcase to the world by walking over the top of them. And viewership numbers are sky high. It is, it is amazing yeah. how much God has blessed these specials. And, and mind you, every single special that I've done, I constantly, it is about proclaiming the name of Jesus. It's not preaching. It's me living my life out in the open. But every one of these networks that I've signed with know exactly who Nicolend is and what he's about and what he's going to say on the wire, because that's how he stays calm and cool in these tough situations. And every one of them choose to keep my mic on. It's not as though it's a predetermined, hey, ABC, if you hire me, you have to keep my mic on. They have every control right to turn off that mic. And every time, every walk I've done, national and worldwide special, they've kept my mic hot the entire time. Wow. Can you walk us through a little bit of the model shift you had to do, like the way it was done in the previous generation? And then, because you've mentioned TV specials and breaking world records, but just... I think that's one of the challenges with, certainly with the circus, was the circus kind of stayed the way it was. And, uh, you know, for example, um, flashy costumes with rhinestones and Liberace. I mean, that's what circus was. Well, when I walked across uh, the Grand Canyon, I wore jeans and a T-shirt. And, and the reason why I did that was I was comfortable in jeans and a t-shirt and I had other options of what I could wear. And of course I choose what I'm going to wear before these specials. But, um, I took a lot of backlash from people in my industry. Like, how dare you? You're a circus performer. Why are you wearing jeans and t-shirt? Well, it made me more relevant because it made me more relatable. People said, wow, well, he's walking on a wire, but he looks just like me. We all, most of us walk. So therefore it was relatable. Um, so it was really just small things that I did in my career to change, uh, obviously major events, these major. Yeah. I was going to say, because that's different. You didn't try to build your own ensemble and go from town to town, city to city, village to village. Yeah. Right. Well, but and, and you know, it's interesting enough. My passion is under a big top as crazy as that sounds. Mm-hmm. I love performing to 2000 people in a small setting where I can look each and every one in the eye and I can talk to them. Uh, very rare that anybody in our industry talks from the wire. Uh, you generally, it's a circus performance, but you know, I've, I've adapted what I do and I motivate the audience as I'm walking a water, I'll tell them an inspiring or encouraging story because to me, that's what, what I do. I inspire people to step out of their comfort zones. And that's my goal. Every time I get on a wire over the grand Canyon, Niagara falls, a volcano, Chicago, New York city, I'm stepping out of my comfort zone. People think, oh, it's just your comfort zone. Well, no, it, it isn't necessarily. Again, different elements, different environments. I try to prepare as best I can, but it's all about the mind. So it is me stepping out of my comfort zone when I take that first step. Uh, And uh, so I have just adapted in that sense where, again, I have taken an art that people used to be impressed by, I guess, and turned it to inspiring. You know, what I do often impresses people, but I think more than anything, it inspires them. Uh, I often say, what's your wire? 
because we all have a wire and we're all trying to get on that wire and then we're all trying to get it safely to the other side. Uh, and we all have that in life. No, that's a good point. And there's a big difference between straddling the Grand Canyon or Times Square or Niagara Falls and, you know, the 100 feet inside a big top, which some of us who are old enough would have seen yeah. in our lifetime. Yeah, so, I remember so that. So that is truly my passion is performing to a small group of people because I love that relational. I can look at people. I can talk to them. I can interact with them. You know, my big events clearly often, you know, there might be 100,000 plus people there at Times Square. But I can't, you know, I can't even see their facial expressions at that point. Mm. So um, for me, I love doing that. But what I've done, I've done everything that I have done outside of the big top is is honestly to, to point people back to the big top. My my dream is to reinvent the circus, bring it back in a new light that is more relevant uh, because it is the purest form of family entertainment. You know, it is it is clean, fun. It is inspiring. It's funny. It's uh, you know, children, we say children of all ages, one to 101, we can entertain everybody. Um, so, so that truly is my heart's desire. I was doing an interview the other day and the woman, and I don't know, uh, uh, she said, Nick Walenda is the, he's going to be the savior of the circus. Um, and, and, and I thought, wow, that's pretty crazy. If, if God gave me the ability, uh, and the gift to be able to save an industry that is 500 years old, that is going away. Um, by the platform that he's given me. Um, but again, it is about changing small things here and there. It's about, you know, using different talent. You know, uh, again, to me, I watch YouTube and I see the soccer player who's who's kicking a soccer ball around, but doing, you know, juggling a soccer ball for 15 minutes while he climbs up a flagpole. Or, those are the people that I want on my show because that is a more relevant. People can relate to playing soccer. They can relate to trying to juggle a soccer ball on their feet. So trying to take this age-old art, it's still a form of circus. It's still a juggler, but it's something, again, that's more, more relatable uh, than maybe, maybe what you would normally see. So a guy juggling nine balls, that sort of thing. That's a really fascinating uh, image, you know, to think about the soccer player. Because, again, you want to look at America or Canada or much of the world today one of the great common denominators is soccer and soccer is accessible, right? All you need is a ball and you can, it's like basketball. All you need is a ball and a hoop, hoop and you're all set. Any other ideas on if you're going to bring back the circus, how it would be different, what it might look like? Yeah. I mean, even like when it comes to animals. So I have a German shepherd. He is my best friend. I love him. He does everything with me. Uh, he's police trained, etc. And uh, he's a search dog. So you can hide something. He'll go find it. So that's just another way of, of incorporating, uh, uh, like I would love to have a German Shepherd or a couple that are trained. We go out in the audience before they're even under the big top. We give five items to the public and they put them anywhere they want in the big top, anywhere you want. Now that's our entertainment. These dogs come in and they find them. To me, that's <laughs> fascinating. How can a dog in 2000 people here, he's going to find that acorn that you put in your purse. Those sort of things to me, again, just just trying to stay, change the way it's done. It's still what, what in our industry would be called a dog act, but this is something right. that dogs are trained to do to help save lives. And um, again, so just things like that. It's just small little changes, uh, but it, it changes the perception of what we do. But again, it's always trying to think outside of the box and think the next step. Okay, what else can we do to A, uh, remain relevant, but also change uh, with the times and adapt to, okay, People don't agree with dogs jumping through hoops of fire. I get it. I don't either. But they definitely see police dogs and respect the fact that they're trained to go and search for whatever it might be and return it. 
I love I love the way you're turning that in a whole new direction, and it feels very current uh, compared to even when I was a kid. You know, you kind of had the feeling that I think the circus has seen its better days, right? Like you have that feeling. Well, your new book is all about confronting fear. Anything else you want to tell us about the mind-body connection? Because that is something, whether you're walking a wire or whether you are just trying to get through the next board meeting or leadership team meeting or Sunday, it's hard. I I encourage people to be bold. And and I often um, will push myself out of my comfort zone. And and it depends. For example, I just talked about this new drive-in thrill show that I came up with. I've never in my life self-promoted a show. I've always been contracted in. I've headlined on shows. Right. So ABC does world. it for you or Correct. Disney or but somebody. I've never actually put up my own money. And because of that story I told you earlier, where one day you eat the chicken and the next day you eat the feathers, I've been raised with that fear. It's been embedded in my mind of how am I going to pay my bills? Remember, my mom wrote a book, The Last of the Walendas. My parents went through financial struggles, bankruptcy twice as I was growing up. I mean, they struggled, struggled, struggled. So I was raised with that fear. Um, so even even putting the show on, which was a substantial financial risk on my part, was me stepping out of my comfort zone. But I I basically said, look, I if I'm going to live by the words, never give up, and if I'm going to inspire people to step out of their comfort zone, then I need to step out outside of mine. Even motivational speaking, when I when I used to get on fr- in a stage in front of people, my goodness, I, I wouldn't sleep three nights before, but I slept till 10 a.m. the morning before I walked over the Grand Canyon crazy, right? But the reality is that fear is real. And the only way to get over that fear is to push yourself through it, step out of your comfort zone and do it. And after you do it, as you do it more and more, you go, okay, well, this isn't so bad. This is actually good. And you realize a lot of times I think our greatest callings are behind those, those closed doors, uh, you know, that we need to, that we need to walk through. So, um, I just, I, more than anything, encourage people to be bold and don't listen to negativity. You know, I think so many of us have we all have that analogy of the, the angel and the devil, right? And it's one yeah, saying, yeah. get on stage and say this. And the other saying, you're going to sound like an idiot when you get on stage and say that. And we all go through that. And and I encourage people to, to that, you know, I often say that a weed, uh, sorry, that a negative thought is like a weed growing in your garden. Mm-hmm. And if you don't pull that weed out immediately, it'll eventually take over your garden. So when I'm walking over the Grand Canyon, 43 mile an hour winds, my dad's in my ear, Jim Cantori's on the side. Jim Cantori tells my dad, Hey, he just got hit with 43 mile an hour winds. My dad goes, that was a 43 mile an hour gust. I'm like, my mind wants to go crazy, but I can go, no, that's a negative thought. But how about the positive thought that I trained in 90 mile an hour winds for this? So I'm going to be fine. Um, I've trained, I've prepared, I've walked a wire five times this length, etc. So I always try to counter negative with positive, no matter what. And don't let that negative weed uh, take root, germinate, spread more seeds, because eventually it takes over your whole mind and it tears you down. So, you know, I, I control what I put in my mind, what I watch on TV, what I listen to on the radio. Even when it comes to media and news, I control what I listen to because we can't believe media and news often these days. Um, we can't believe everything we hear. That's for darn sure. Um, internet, all of that. So so I, I'm very careful in controlling. And, and to be honest with me, I love worship music. I listen to worship yeah. music eight, 10 hours a day. And it is always positive. And, and, and it's funny, it's revelation, revelation came to me while I was writing this last book. But growing up, my mom used to listen to an artist called Keith Green. I don't know if you remember Keith. I, I know the name. I ne- never listened much. So, but yeah. so uh, she would listen to him all the time. We'd be traveling across the country in our box truck. I'd be in the sitting in the back. They'd be in the front seat, mom and dad, my sister and me in the back, listening to that music. And it was always a positive message of what God's created us to be, 
Um, and, and everything was always positive that was fed into my mind. And I, I fell in love with worship music at a young age and continue to listen to it all the time now. In fact, when I cut my grass, I have, I have 15 acres. I love cutting grass. It takes me six hours. I'm listening to worship music. When I'm in my truck, I'm listening to worship music. Before a walk, I'm listening to worship music. Before a show, I love worship music. If I have any negative thoughts in my mind, I put on a worship song immediately. And it is always positive, inspiring, and uplifting. So I'm always knocking down that negativity. Uh, if I get an argument with my wife, I put on worship music. Because it will not let my mind stay in that negative place. It just won't. So you can do that with motivational speaking on YouTube, or you can do it with worship music, or you do it with inspirational music. But there's so much power in just not allowing that negativity. People don't realize they let that negativity in. Again, it comes sneaking in, and it's just a small little trickle. And now all of a sudden, they turn that faucet on, and they start feeding that negativity and feeding that negativity. And even with the, with, with the environment that we're in now, with, with uh, you know COVID-19 and what we're facing— Look, I mean, I could watch the media every day and be frightened to steps outside of my house if, if I wanted to, to, to watch that. Um, but again, I watch it, but I watch it in, in moderation. I don't have the news channel on 24 hours a day because, again, unfortunately, majority of news is negative. Um, and I choose to not allow that negative. Again, again, I have to stay. It's, it's important that I, that I keep up with the news, that I know what's going on with society and I know what the warnings are of COVID-19 and, and what limitations I need to take. But I'm not going to live my life gripped by fear. I'm going to I'm I'm going to live my life educated, but also fear free. It's interesting. Uh, I really appreciate the time you set aside for us today. But I'd love to uh, wrap up kind of where we started on preparation. So you're in a very physical environment, right? You can get the fire department in, get the airboats blowing wind on you. But for a lot of us, we live in the world of ideas, human relationships, trying to lead an organization, uh, trying to make progress. Any thoughts on how a leader would train in adverse conditions? Like how do I, what is my wind machine? Yeah, what, is, think, what is me being hosed down? I think a lot of it is just, just preparing. And as you said, most leaders do try to prepare for worst cases. You know, when I go into a meeting with the government of, of, Canada, okay, yeah, at Queens yeah. Park, and I go to a meeting to get permission to walk across Niagara Falls. Weeks prior to that, I sit with my team and we talk about what are all the negatives? What are all the reasons why they're going to say no? And when I go into that meeting and I speak and I'm very well prepared and have all the details and documentation I need, I go in there and answer all of their questions before they can ask the first question. Um, you know, when you go into a meeting with the city of Chicago and there were 45 people, the mayor's office, the aldermen, the, the fire department, DOT, you name it. I'm trying to shut down streets to walk a wire, to risk my life between two buildings. What about liability? What about safety? What about public safety? What about having to shut down roads? You know, all of these negatives. And I go in there, I spoke for 25 minutes, went around the room with 45 officials, and every one of them said, you already answered our question. So it's about preparing and then over-preparing and figuring out where did I not prepare and then preparing more. You know, you can never prepare enough. When I when I speak in public, I'll 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 write my speech and then read it five hundred times in front of a mirror. Now I can go out there and just talk and get away with it, but that's not delivering to the highest. And, and as a believer, I'm delivered. I'm I'm supposed to be Christ-like, which means I'm supposed to deliver at one hundred and twenty percent, which is what he always did. Um, that's not me preparing properly. So that's complacency, right? Of well, I can get through. I can wing it through this meeting. I can get permission from Chicago if I just go in there and and talk, and then I'll have to answer a bunch of emails and have my team deal with stuff. 
or I can go in there one time and have the answers or what we think the answers or questions will be and answer those questions before they can ask them. So a lot of it is just, again, figuring out what, what are you preparing for and then over prepare and figure out, uh, again, what are the challenges? What is the worst case of this situation? And that's just, you know, that's just wisdom that God gives us. And we're supposed to use that. Uh, and and I, if there's one thing I pray for every single day, it's that God will give me wisdom. Uh, mm. over above all things. That is my greatest prayer is that God will give me wisdom. It's a great prayer. And Nick, uh, I got to tell you, with that kind of preparation, you would have made a great trial lawyer. Way to go. <laughs> well, thanks. I have had a lot of politicians ask me to get into politics, and I've had a lot of people tell me I should be a lawyer. <laughs> so tell us about the book and then where people can find you online. Yeah, so my latest book is Facing Fear, and it's, it's about a journey that I took uh, in overcoming fear. Uh, about two and a half years ago, I didn't know I had fear in my DNA. However, we were training to break our own world record for the eight-person pyramid that we set in Japan back in 2001. We were going to do it higher at 28 feet above the ground. Uh, and after training about six weeks, we went up high. We trained down low in a safe environment, prepare for the worst. Uh, we went up high and got on the wire, and we lost our balance. And that pyramid collapsed. Five of my family members and friends fell to the ground. My sister was injured very bad. In fact, broke every bone in her face, 73 screws and plates uh, in her face alone. Um, and she was in a coma. They didn't expect her to live. Uh, and I got on the wire the next day. Performed, walked about 100 Your dad encouraged you to get on the wire, did he not? He did. That's right. Yeah, I tell that story yeah. in my book that my dad said, look, you need, to, you need to get back up there. It's what your family would want. It's what your family's always done. So got back on the wire, performed the next month, took about six weeks off. After those six weeks, got back on the wire, training for the seven-person pyramid for a contract I had signed to headline on a show in, big, in New York City. And uh, as I started walking out on the wire, I began trembling. Uh, and it was because a seed was planted. I talked about the weeds growing in the garden. That seed was planted the night of that fall. And after that fall, that seed, I just continued to water that seed over and over again. And rather than forcing that negativity out and saying, look, I've done that pyramid 1,500 times and it fell once, I was looking at the once, not the 1500 and continued to water it. So got on the wire after about two weeks of training, I went to my wife and said, I'm done. I'm, I'm not getting back on the wire again. And I remember she said, my wife comes from eight generations of circus, third oldest circus in the world out of Australia, has her own world records. In fact, one hanging by her teeth under a helicopter over Niagara Falls about five years ago. Uh, of course, but, that uh, one. She said, she said, look, she said, you live by the words, never give up and you inspire people all over the world. I'll support you in your decision, but I think you need to rethink your decision and rethink why you're dealing with what you're dealing with. So I put on worship music, which is what I do. And yeah. uh, I started listening to music for about five days. That's all I did was just sat there, just talking to God like, okay, I've got to work through this. You know, he's, he's the great redeemer. And I, I, I spent, he's the greatest counselor in the world. We have him uh, with us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I just talked with God for, for basically five days a week, 20 plus hours a day and just poured my heart out. And, um, and through that was able to work through and see that I had, I had been feeding into, again, I've been watering that seed. And, uh, the book is about the process that it took for me to overcome that. You know, it was to the point where I was dealing with, uh, I don't want to, it was never diagnosed PTSD, but I would be walking out of the wire and on the wire and watch that pyramid fall right in front of me, just crumble in front of me, hear the sounds. I mean, things would trigger it over and over again. Um, so the book is really about that process of, of what I had to go through to overcome that fear. And, you know, it's funny, I was talking with the, with my publishing company and, uh, when they, when this originally came out and said, look, 
I honestly don't really have a desire to write another book, but I really believe that that this experience that I went through needs to be heard by so many because I believe that society, much of society is gripped by fear. You know, I started writing this book about nine months ago and coronavirus wasn't a thing at that point. At least we weren't no. aware of it. And now that that has happened, the fear is just overwhelming. You can feel it when you go out in public, the amount of fear. And I don't believe that, you know, there's no fear in love. I don't believe that God wants us to live in fear. He wants us to live in freedom. And my hopes are that people, by seeing what, by hearing the story of what I went through, uh, will be able to be, overcome their challenges and what they're facing in fear and step out of their comfort zones, pursue their greatest dreams. Uh, again, so many people give up on their dreams because of fear, fear of being unsuccessful. Okay, I'm miserable every morning when I get up and go to work, but I'm going to go to work because I know that on Friday I get a paycheck. Rather than going, okay, well, you know what? Don't be foolish. Don't just walk in and quit your job. Have your backup plan, you know, as you're working your job and work until Friday, but then work on weekends until your dream will become a reality. And uh, again, so many people give up on that. So many people are on the cusp of success and it's just that one last step and that's when they fall. That's when they give up. It was fairly recent that that accident happened, right? Like 2017, three years ago. A couple years ago, yeah. Yeah. How do you continue to talk yourself out of that negative space and into the positive space? You've talked yeah, about worship know, music and Yeah, so it is it is something that you have to practice. I mean, I practice it when I'm when I'm dealing with with my my teenager misbehaving and I practice <laughs> it when when the car pulls in front of me on the on the road. You know, I I don't always I don't always uh, I'm not always successful, but I I, I continually practice. Okay, don't allow your mind to go there. You know, I've learned that, uh, you know, younger on early on, and I talk a lot about almost get, you know, losing my wife, uh, to divorce in my first book, because, um, I would, I would, I was so, um, so controlled by fear that I would allow her to do anything. Um, but, but again, I've learned now and, and it would cause huge arguments. I've learned now that there's no benefit in getting into that argument because it's, again, it's your mind going to a negative place. We as humans, I don't know why, uh, have been programmed to go to negativity. When I get, again, when I get uh, in an argument with my wife, it's about the 20 years and the, the 20 arguments, not the 500 incredible evenings that we've had and going to movies and dates and whatever. It's always the, tw the, the minute negative aspect. Uh, so I try to program my mind to go, nope, I'm not gonna go to that negative. We're not gonna think about the bad times. Even though I'm, I'm upset, I'm mad, I'm arguing, I'm gonna think about the good times because immediately, even sometimes just making yourself smile will change your attitude. Forcing yourself, and sometimes begrudgingly, and it's a tough thing, but force yourself to smile next time you're mad. And you'll find yourself laughing at yourself because yeah. we waste so much energy on negativity. And if we could just focus all that energy on positiveness, we could change the world. And, and I truly believe that. Wow. Well, Nick, I'm, I'm so grateful for you. Where can people uh, find you online or on social? Yeah, so if you go to Nick Walenda, it's just N-I-K, W-A-L-L-E-N-D-A on all the social media channels and nickwalenda.com. Uh, you'll be able to order my book uh, through nickwalenda.com. There's a link there. And any of your retailers, you can actually order a pre-order online as we speak. Nick, it's been, uh, been fascinating. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I truly appreciate it. Well, that was interesting. And doesn't it help you see adversity as your friend? Uh, and, and that whole bit about how you train to go over Niagara Falls and then what happens uh, when it doesn't quite work out the way you think it is, man, that is so much more complicated than it looks on TV. 
doesn't it? And it looks complicated on TV, but when you actually hear the breakdown, it's like crazy. Anyway, hey, if you enjoyed that, we've got show notes for you. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 364. We include transcripts with that absolutely free to you. Thanks to our partners. Also want to tease out next episode before we get to what I'm thinking about, which is how to find unity in a divided time and the people you lead. And I've got Kathy Heller. This is an episode that I recorded uh, months ago before we did the COVID pivot on this show. And I'm so excited to finally be able to bring that to you. Her Don't Keep Your Day Job podcast has 15 million downloads, or it did earlier in the year. It's probably like 20 now. She runs multiple seven-figure businesses from her home. She has a fascinating story. I just love hearing her story. And uh, it's a sideways journey to success, which I think is always exciting. So here's an excerpt from the next episode. The reason why I pay is because um, I want the results, right? So Ramit says to me, Kath, why would I pay less when I can pay more? Because if I want to save money, that's one thing. But if I actually want this result, if I actually want to learn to play guitar, if I actually want to get healthier, and that's what I want, not saving money, but I actually want that result checked off my list. I'm healthier this year than I was last year. I'm actually creating an online course. I'm writing music for NBC and I actually want the result. There is no way I can do that without my actual trainer who's done it, who has the results. I cannot do it watching from the sidelines. I am so sorry. And then you know what I'll do? I will think I'm doing it, which is the worst. That's coming up September 8th. I can't wait for that. And uh, in the meantime, I am going to bring you the latest one I'm thinking about segment. So how do you lead a church that can't agree on anything right now? Like, should we be open? Should we be closed? Should we wear masks? Should we not wear masks? Do we send our kids to school? Do we send our kids to student ministry? I mean, that's really, really hard. Well, this segment is brought to you by Remodel Health. Visit remodelhealth.com forward slash carry to learn how your organization can save on healthcare and by Promedia Fire. Book your free digital strategy session today at promediafire.com forward slash church growth. Uh, man, these are very divided times. I am not confident it's going to get better before November, but uh, hey, here we are. And uh, a lot of you are saying, man, there used to be like two opinions, and now we have four or five, and people just can't agree on almost anything. So what do you do as a leader when you have division on your staff, division on your board, division in your church, division in your organization, on your team? I'm going to suggest a few principles. Number one, let's bring it all back to the mission. I've led through some divided times before, Um, man, we did a lot of change in the first few years of ministry and not everybody agreed. And uh, I just kept focusing on the mission and the mission's your best friend. Church has the best mission in the world, but if you're a corporate leader, your company has a mission. Uh, The mission of us who bring you this podcast is to help people thrive in life and leadership. And mission unites. You see, like who's going to disagree with thriving in life and leadership? In a church, who's going to disagree with leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus? Like if you disagree with that, you have serious problems. And what that does, a great mission will unify people who are otherwise divided. And um, there's three questions that come back to the leadership table over and over again. Why, what, and how? And, um, you know, you just got to focus on the why. This is why we're doing it, guys. We're not going to always agree on the what. We're not going to agree on the how, but let's talk about the why. And then the second thing you do is highlight what you agree on. So, um, you know, there are probably times in the past where you agreed on things. Focus on that. Maybe you agree that we've got to make a difference in the city. Focus on that. You can do really trivial things sometimes when you group. It's like, hey, don't you both love photography? 
Um, hey, both of you are so good at serving the poor or uh, how about that football game or anything that puts people back on the same page. But when you're in a divided room, highlight what you agree on. These next two principles are from the Harvard Negotiation Project, but I've used them for decades now. Uh, so principle three is this, separate the people from the problem. And you're probably tempted to think, Carrie, my problem is the people. Yeah, you can look at it that way, but um, you don't have to. Uh, people aren't the problem and you've got to separate the people from the problem. So rather than saying, I can't believe you're opposed to wearing masks, you might say something like, wow, I can see you have strong views on masks. Here's our challenge. We want to reach more people and the government, as well as our sense of what's best, says to wear them. How can we work through this together? Now, you see what you do by reframing that? You kind of put your arm around the person and say, you're not the problem. The problem's over there. And so let's, let's tackle this problem together. That will not 100% of the time work but you've got to remember the people are not the problem. And you can often turn an opponent into an ally if you separate them from the problem. And then number four, focused on interests, not positions. Again, that's from the Harvard Negotiation uh, Project. So what is that all about? Well, what it's about is people take positions. It's like, I'm opposed to X or I believe in Y or whatever. But underneath that is an interest. So an example from my first five years in ministry, I led three small growing churches that were in historic buildings, like 100-year-old buildings. And obviously, there's a tradition with that, right? Now, we were starting to outgrow one or two of the buildings, and um, I said, why don't we sell them? And we'll amalgamate our ministries and start over again. And as you can imagine, people were opposed to that. Um, but rather than focusing on positions, we should not sell the building. We focused on interests. And I tried to consistently refocus the conversation around, well, what do we want to accomplish here? Do you want a church where your kids and grandkids can come? Yeah. All right. Then maybe one of the best ways to do that is to actually move into a new facility because these we are starting to outgrow. So your job as a leader in divided times is to be the chief unifier. And that means you've got to check the divisive tendencies within you. Uh, here's a fifth one, and this is just for your input. Change the channel. Um, we all know that garbage in produces garbage out, but so does division. And your social feed is probably very, very divided right now. Uh, there's probably some people you want to mute. You may want to take a break from TV news. I have for years now. I read my news instead from a couple of reputable sources. Or I know you can't even say that anymore, right? Without people going, well, what sources do you read? Anyway. Uh, I'll tell you one day if we meet, okay? Um, there's some good people out there and there's some people who are trying to find unity. We try to do that around here. We're trying to be a voice somewhere in the middle. Uh, there's some good people out there, follow them. Um, if you are seeing division, hatred, and anger all the time, uh, it is gonna eventually leak out of you. So I hope those are some strategies that can really help you as you lead into the future and lead into the fall. So that's uh, how to lead a church that can't agree on anything right now. I got a blog version of that. And if you want to sign up for an email list, we serve over 70,000 leaders pretty much every day with a short little nugget of leadership wisdom uh, that sometimes links to bigger resources if you want to build your library, but it's just short. And you can text the word carry, my name, C-A-R-E-Y, to 33777. That will uh, get you the link to sign up for my daily emails. So thank you so much, leaders, for all of this. We so appreciate you. We're back next time with Kathy Heller. In the meantime, I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. 
Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.